I want to welcome you all to our resurrection celebration this morning. Those who are members, those who are guests, and those who are family and friends, we're delighted that you have chosen to join us this Sunday and be part of our church family to celebrate the good news that Jesus is indeed worthy. He is alive and he is present with us. This has been uh, a difficult year for our world, for our nation, and for many members in our church and family members. It has not been easy. This has been a season of conflict, of war, and illness that has given us every reason to quite frankly, be apprehensive, to be fearful, to be anxious, and to be worried. And yet, because of the good news of Jesus Christ and because of the good news of the resurrection, why we're gathered here this morning, and what we've heard through God's word and what we have just sung, disciples of Jesus Christ have every reason to rejoice and to celebrate And this is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. There are not many things in this life or this world that change everything. From the ground up, complete transformation. There are many who sell those things, whether it be in our technology or our cars or our careers, that there's a new start or a new opportunity, a new marriage, a new life, a new church. But the resurrection very much so is a celebration that God in Christ has changed definitively everything. Everything that is wrong and broken in this messed up world. And this morning, what I would like to do is I would like to take a little of your time to take you through God's Word and to show you from God's Word, very specifically from the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, why we celebrate as children of God. Why do we celebrate the resurrection? And if you're not a Christian, I hope you'll have this opportunity to hear why we celebrate when the rest of the world is really struggling. And it is because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ changes everything. And in the God-breathed words of Acts 26, the Apostle Paul provides for us an account of what specifically changed everything in his life. And there are no shortage of scholarly debates about the Apostle Paul, whose letters arguably make up 30 to 40% of our New Testament. But there is one historical event which even unbelieving scholars and historians agree upon. And that is, 2,000 years ago, probably around 34 AD, something happened on the road to Damascus that radically changed Not only the life of a leader of the Pharisees and a persecutor of the church named Saul of Tarsus, but it also changed the life of the church. And by extension, it changed the history of the world. And one of the consequences of that life-changing event on the road to Damascus was that sometime around 59 AD, this man who was once one of the most privileged and respected Pharisees in Jerusalem, 
As a result of that experience on the road of Damascus, he is brought in chains before the Roman governor in Caesarea, Festus, and he is brought before a Hebrew king named Agrippa. And he is brought before them in chains, having lost almost everything that this world has to offer because of his faith in the one who he formerly hated and opposed and persecuted. And he is brought under charges of sedition and treason and rebellion against Rome and the Roman emperor. And these are charges that carry with them a death penalty if they are proven. And in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is called upon by King Agrippa to give a defense, to explain himself, to explain why he's such a troublemaker, why all these problems have happened, why the majority of religious Jews in Jerusalem want him dead, why is he such a problem, why has he come to this, how is someone who Agrippa might have even known or at least knew his circles, how has he come to this? And in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul makes a defense for his life. And the defense that he makes is all about what we celebrate today. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't come and say they have it wrong. He doesn't come and say, well, this is the reason I should not be executed. He simply makes a case about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And he explains why we celebrate today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts 26. As the Apostle Paul, through his testimony and his defense before Festus and King Agrippa, explains to us why the resurrection not only changed his life, but why it changes everything. Acts 26. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Paul's been brought before King Agrippa to provide his defense. And in verse 1 we read, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. 
At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Well, this is the word of the Lord. What is it that inspires a man who has lost almost everything this world has to offer? And that includes his freedom. What we make so much about in America. What is it that inspires a man in such a condition to say as Paul does in verse 2, I consider myself blessed. In the translation that you have it probably says fortunate, but in the Greek it says blessed. I consider myself blessed to be in this position, King Agrippa, to come before you and to share my testimony even though I'm in chains and the death penalty looms over my head. What is it that makes you feel blessed? What do you rejoice? What do you celebrate in? What is it that you view in another person? That's a blessed person and I would like to be like him. Well, for most of us, if we were sitting there in the room with King Agrippa and looked at the Apostle Paul, who by this time was pretty beaten up pretty scarred. It was not an attractive man by many accounts. I hardly think we would say this is the one we aspire to be. This is a blessing I'm looking for. And yet in his heart, with all sincerity, he was rejoicing. He believed and was convinced and was indeed blessed. And of course, that's because of the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. It's a complete reversal of the way we think in our world. And yet, this is the way Paul thinks. Well, what is it that would inspire a man to think this way? And what is it that transforms a heart of murderous rage, which he admits to, of really being responsible for not only the imprisonment, but the punishment and torture, and really execution and murder of Christians... What is it that transforms that heart of murderous rage into a a heart of gracious love? And what is it that converts one of the greatest persecutors of the church into one of its greatest 
martyrs. Well, according to the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, it is what saves and transforms and changes all true children of God. All those who indeed are disciples of our Lord and Jesus, disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to God's word. And this is what has saved the Apostle Paul. And this is what has transformed him from the inside out. And this is what has made him into the Apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. People he formerly viewed as dogs and unclean. And people he would walk to the other side of the street to avoid. And this is what has brought him in chains before King Agrippa. It is the good news of the resurrection that explains each stage of the Apostle Paul's life. As you go through this passage, you see Paul walks through his childhood, he goes through his adulthood, and he goes all the way to the point where he's standing, waiting for his death, or anticipating the possibility of his death, before the Roman governor and King Agrippa. And as he walks through those three stages, each point, the focal point, the north on his compass is always the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He begins in verses 4 through 11, talking about his hope in the resurrection as a Pharisee. And then he goes on and talks about his face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord. His encounter with the resurrection of Jesus in verses 12 through 18. And then finally, he talks about his participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 23. Every aspect of his life has been transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is his north. It is his compass. And it is what gives him joy and reason to celebrate. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. The resurrection is the only real hope for this world. How did the Apostle Paul have hope at that time? How could he function in this way? Well, his hope was not in the things of this world. It wasn't in his career, clearly. He'd given that up. It wasn't in his wealth. He'd given that up. It wasn't in his following because as time went on, most of the people in the churches began to abandon him. But his hope was in something beyond this world. And it begs the questions, brothers and sisters, what are you hoping in? What do you hope will fix this broken world? What do you hope will make your life better? What do you hope is going to end wars, end poverty, end hunger? end disease, end racism. Well, in this day and age, we place our hope in social justice and famine relief and critical race theory. Are we hoping in the Republicans to make America great again? Are we hoping in the Democrats? It begs the question, what hope are you betting your life on? In this place that we live, we place our hope on technology, on medical research. We place our hope on our education and our careers. All these things that we look to in order to try and make our lives better. But for the Apostle Paul, as he stands before Agrippa and he stands before Festus, there is only one hope worth living for. And for the Apostle Paul, it is a hope worth 
dying for. And it is the hope promised by God in His Word. And this is what the Apostle Paul has bet his life on, so to speak. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul explains. He says, I stand here on trial, verse 6, because of my hope in what? The promise made by God to our fathers. And in verse 7 he says, for this hope I am accused. The Apostle Paul was willing to put everything on the line for this hope. And what is this hope that he's referring to? Well, he explains in verse 8, it's the hope in God's promise to the Hebrew fathers that's been given in his word. It's the hope of God's promise that he would raise the dead. And in its narrowest sense, resurrection refers to a raising up from the dead to new life. It's a supernatural work that only God can accomplish because he's the holy creator of the universe and giver of life. It's a raising up of the dead to new life. In its narrowest sense, that's what it refers to. But as described in Scripture, this is a hope that is categorically deemed by Greeks and Romans and by modern men today, anybody with half an education, then and now, as something which is absolutely crazy. The Apostle Paul uses the word apestu for this, which means unbelievable. That men view this as unbelievable. And at that time and era, educated Greeks and Romans did not believe in resurrection. They categorically refused it. Some people believed in the immortality of souls because of Plato, that, you know, we hang around forever, we get reincarnated. But this idea that something that is dead can come alive and not just back to ordinary life, but to a completely new life and a new beginning and yet be the same person, that was considered to be rubbish and foolishness then as it is in our day and age. And yet, the Apostle Paul in Scripture points to the reality That not only is resurrection real, but it is absolutely necessary. In verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul explains his hope in the resurrection did not begin as a Christian. He points out that it began from his youth onwards as an elite scholar and member of the Pharisees. A group that the Apostle Paul describes as the strictest party of the Jewish religion. They are the forerunners of what we refer to today as Orthodox Jews. Or the Hasidim, which means in some translations the Holy Ones. They were religious Jews who believed in the Old Testament scripture as the literal word of God. That had been given to God's chosen people. The sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And according to the Apostle Paul, this hope as a Pharisee in God's promise of resurrection was ultimately a hope in the God of the Bible. If you see on the screen, I have Isaiah 26, 19 written there. And if you can't read it, if the print's too small, you can look at it in your Bibles. But Isaiah 26, 19 says... Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. 
for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, if you look at that and you see the words that are used to describe this event, rise, live, those who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, light, giving birth to the dead. Okay, we see not only here the promises, but how God describes this promise of resurrection. And as we see this promise of resurrection that's given, we see that it's much more than just restoring a heartbeat. Sometimes doctors can do that by shocking your heart. And we can see the blips on the screen, but they're not doing what resurrection is talking about. We talk about saving people's lives. Physicians talk about that frequently. We saved another life. But typically all we do, as Martin Lloyd-Jones made the point, is we just provide a temporary band-aid to restore sinners so that they can keep on going out to sin again. There is nothing new about those lies, but resurrection is talking about something that is worth singing and rejoicing over. It is about a completely new life. And very specifically, it's talking about a life that is free from sin and death. And what Paul is referring to when he talks about this hope, this hope that he had when he was a Pharisee, it really is a summation of the entire Old Testament. The entire Word of God is God's promise of love to His people. That this world that we have messed up with our sin and our pride and our unbelief and our conflicts and famine and lack of food because one group has and the other does not, and our selfishness and our ugliness and self-centeredness, the ways in which from Adam and Eve onwards, this world has been broken by our sin. Only one person can repair and fix that. And not only can he repair and fix that, but he is promised as the holy creator and source of all life, To reverse the process, to redeem and restore what is broken, and to make all things new. And how has he promised to do that? Well, as you walk through the Old Testament, you see over and over again the way that that must be fixed is our sin, our pride, and our unbelief, and all that we've done, and all that we've broken. must be made anew. What is the root of all that is wrong in this world? Well, according to God's word, it's us. It's our pride, our unbelief, and sin. Now I know that's offensive. We don't live in an age where we want to take ownership or say that we're the responsibility for what's wrong in this world. But when we come to God's word from beginning to end, God points out And he shows us, just have a look at yourself. Just look at the patterns in your life. Just look at the way things go. And look at the things that you do over and over again. Look at the choices you make. Look at the desires and the things that you go after. See the hurt and consequence over time. A moment of pleasure, a moment of fun, a moment of encouragement. But the ongoing pattern for all of us goes in one direction. And that direction typically is further and further and further away from the God who loves us and has given us life. We can't stop that slide. And it is our sin and our unbelief and our pride, our desire to live our way rather than God's way 
that separates us from God, the only source of life and love. And this is what leads to conflict and this is what leads to disease and this is what leads to death and this is what leads to men like Vladimir Putin and this is what leads to a nation like America. Romans 6.23, Paul later writes, for the wages of sin is death. Now that's a hard reality. But that's not the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. Because what God does repeatedly throughout the Old Testament is to his people. He calls them to repent and says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. Place your faith in me instead of all these broken things in the world. And I will forgive you. And I will redeem you. And I will remake you. And out of something dead, I will create something new and beautiful and wonderful. I will restore you to my life and my love. And that's the foundation. And that's what resurrection is about. It's a reversal of all that is ugly and all that is broken. And all that we have damaged. It is not unlike a parent coming in after their child has broken that toy. And instead of sitting there trying to fix it with scotch tape or put it back together again, instead goes out with money that that child does not have and purchases a completely new toy for that child. Now that's just an illustration and it breaks down in many places. But brothers and sisters, this is what we need. We don't need all the band-aids of this world that eventually come undone. We would talk about that frequently in the hospital where folks would come in and they would have a terrible cancer and some charlatan would offer them some alternative medicine and they would say, well, I've got the cure, doctor. This person for thousands of dollars has offered to fix my cancer. And for a moment or a season, they feel good about it and eventually the cancer takes control because all they have is a lie and a band-aid. And it breaks forth. Well, Paul's hope as a Pharisee was true and real. It lay in the promises of God that there is one who is greater than us who can come in and fix things. But what the Apostle Paul goes on to explain in verse 4 and 8 was this hope he had as a religious Jew and a Pharisee, even though his hope was good, As many religious people do, they live out that hope in a very wrong way. And what the Apostle Paul tried to do, and if you know his story, is ultimately he tried to play God. And he tried to fix and change everything himself. He believed that Jesus was a fraud. He had probably been in Jerusalem and witnessed the crucifixion and perhaps even the trial of Jesus. He was, as he said, opposed to the name of Jesus. And there was a general belief that the Jewish nation as a whole, unless it repented and found purity in God's word and came to the Lord, there would be no resurrection or fulfillment of the promises of God. We've got to get ourselves right and we've got to clean up so that the Messiah can come and we're ready for him and so we can be good enough for him. And so that the new life and the new kingdom and the new restoration and the new world and the new creation, all that what's been promised in the Old Testament can move forward. And those who stand in our way need to be removed. And those were the Christians and those were the followers of Jesus. But as the Apostle Paul 
would see. It's not enough to be zealous for God and His Word. That changes nothing. All that being zealous for God and His Word does, with the same hearts and the same sin and the same brokenness, is create terrorists. Because that's what the Apostle Paul was. He ruled by terror. And we see the same ingredients in our world this day of what breeds terrorists, whether they be Christian or Muslim. Zealousness for God's Word is not what we need. We need to be changed by God and we need to be changed by His Word. And we need to be changed from the inside out. And this is what resurrection is all about. And this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And this brings us to our second point for the day. Resurrection begins with Jesus Christ according to God's word. Resurrection begins with Jesus Christ according to God's word. In verses 12 through 18, the Apostle Paul explains to King Agrippa what changed everything in his life. And quite literally, what resurrected him and gave him a new life. What raised him up to a completely new life. And it was his personal encounter on the road to Damascus with the person he believed to be a fraud. Jesus of Nazareth, the quote-unquote convicted criminal who had been crucified probably years earlier. The one whose followers, the Apostle Paul, was on his way to destroy. And it's Jesus of Nazareth who appears out of heaven with a bright light who speaks to Saul the Pharisee. And he speaks words to Saul the Pharisee like as in Genesis that change everything. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 14. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it's with these words, Saul the Pharisee is confronted by Jesus with three life-changing truths. And the first is that though Jesus was crucified, and though he died, and though he was buried, he is now very much alive. And he is also very much in charge, and he is also very much the authority and author of the Apostle Paul's fate. Who is in charge of your life? Who makes your life good or bad? Who sets the path of where your life is going? Well, the Apostle Paul is made aware of this fact that, in fact, the entirety of his life from beginning to end has been given and directed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this man who we thought was a fraud and was dead. And when Jesus says to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, he's making the point that whatever Paul is trying to do, or at that time Saul the Pharisee, it's completely useless. He's not in charge of his life. He is not fixing anything. In fact, he is pushing up against a path and a direction that has been set for him by the risen Lord. The second truth is that the salvation and redemption and resurrection God had promised through Moses and the prophets has happened and has begun in Jesus Christ. 
everything that the Apostle Paul or Saul the Pharisee at that time was waiting for and striving for and looking for had actually happened at the cross. He was late to the party. And the third truth that Jesus confronts him with with these words is that he, Saul the Pharisee, has everything backwards. Jesus is not the fraud. And Jesus is not the blasphemer. That's the reason they wanted the death penalty for Jesus. They believed he was a blasphemer, someone who made himself equal with God. Someone who claimed to be the son of God. And so because he was allegedly a blasphemer, he deserved to be stoned, but they wanted to do one better. They would crucify him and show that he was cursed by God, not blessed by God. Who was blessed by God? Well, the Pharisees were blessed by God because they knew so much Bible and they adhered to the law. They were religious people. They went to the synagogue on a regular basis. They went to the temple at every time there was an opportunity. They did all the right things. They were the blessed people because they were in the know. Well, when Jesus confronts him as the risen Lord on this road to Damascus where Saul is going to persecute and imprison Christians... Jesus graciously and gently, as he does with all of us, as he confronts our sins. He shows, Saul, you have it all wrong. You have it backwards. You're the fraud. You're the blasphemer. You're the one who's parading as a righteous person who has it all together and is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but you're cursed. You're consumed by your anger and your hatred. You're consumed by your sin. You're consumed by what you cannot accomplish. You think you can fix and change yourself and the world. And instead, you're destroying everything. You are the fraud. And ultimately, you are the blasphemer. Because Jesus is, in fact, God. And the resurrection has proven that. Brothers and sisters, this is the same gospel that is proclaimed today. This is the gospel of what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. What has He done? He has given His Son as a sacrifice so that frauds and blasphemers, all of us, might realize we have this world upside down. How blessed you are isn't the size of your bank account. How blessed you are isn't how great your career is. How smart you are is not going to solve world hunger or poverty or conflict in the streets. We are not God. And when we walk in that path, quite frankly, we are blasphemers and we are frauds. And that goes for our clothes, our movies, our social media, and all the portrayals of the good life that we live when in fact we cannot stop the hurt that we do to others and the steady slide that we have to death and destruction. And yet our Lord and Savior through the gospel reminds us of these things graciously, not just to leave us there, but the truths of the gospel come as we consider what God has done to fix the problem, that Jesus is indeed alive, that he has risen from the grave, and that he offers the forgiveness of sins and the opportunity of a new heart and a new life that is forgiven. Like the Apostle Paul, he gives us the gift of a new start 
and a new life that is resurrected from the inside out that begins here and now and one day will be fulfilled when he comes in person. And this is where Saul, the Pharisees, resurrection and new life in Christ begins. It begins with Christ's command and it begins with faith in Christ and it begins with repentance and looking to Christ to fix and write what the Apostle Paul cannot fix in his own life. And we see this in verse 16, but rise, and that word rise in Greek is anesthethi, which is the same word we use for resurrection. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. He's referring to the resurrection, that he's appointing Paul to go and speak to others to say, Jesus Christ is not dead, he is alive. And to those in which I will appear to you. It's a command. Non-optional. Jesus is taking over Saul's life. And it is no longer Saul who lives. But Christ who lives in Saul. The one who loves Saul and gave his life for him. And Saul is called to be a servant and witness of Christ. Instead of a servant and witness to his own learning and his own beliefs and his own opinions. I have a joke with my sons. We put on Frank Sinatra in our vehicle and we listen to him croon. I did it my way. And everybody groans and everybody sings along because it's a bit of a joke. Of Here's this man who was arguably one of the greatest entertainers that America has ever seen. He conquered America came from nothing. He was able to do it all. He did it his way. And he died his way as well. And the joy of the gospel, as hard as it is to see how much we fall short of the glory of God, it is given to us by the risen Christ to show us that he has something much better. What we sang about today, the entirety of God's love, the entirety of God's goodness, an opportunity for a completely new life where we no longer live for ourselves to do it our way. But instead, with a new heart, we have this opportunity to live God's way, the way we were created to live. And so in verse 17, Jesus goes on and shares with Saul the Pharisee, the beauty of the new life he's giving him. He's calling him to share this witness and it will be a path, verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. This new life is going to deliver you, Saul, from the world and from your past. To whom I am sending you to do what? To give the gift of new life. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Brothers and sisters, what's the price of forgiveness? How much would you give in the middle of a conflict or a disagreement? Or in the middle of hurt? What is the price of forgiveness and reconciliation? Of having those words that have been said taken away and remade and given something completely new. Well, this brings us to our final point for this morning. The resurrection is given and received 
through the gospel. The resurrection is given and received through the gospel. As the Apostle Paul shares this testimony before King Agrippa. He's walking King Agrippa through his own past. He's walking King Agrippa through King Agrippa's childhood because King Agrippa was trained with tutors and would have known all the Old Testament prophets and the teaching of the Jews. It was probably partially required for him as a member of a royal, so to speak, appointed or designated or aristocracy of the Jewish people. And the Apostle Paul is pointing out to him that all of those things that have been promised, all of those things that people hope for, in fact, this is one of the reasons King Agrippa is here. He's curious. He's familiar with the name John the Baptist. He's familiar with the name Jesus of Nazareth. He's familiar with all the speculation that something has happened that people cannot explain. And people claim this is the fulfillment of the new age and the resurrection. Well, the Apostle Paul is presenting to him and pointing out to him, look, it has happened. The resurrection has begun. God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ and it's being made available not only to you, but to the world. And when Saul the Pharisee began to see who Jesus is according to God's word, when he began to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he is alive, and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The Apostle Paul's eyes were opened, and he began to see that on the cross, Jesus was crucified by God the Father. And he began to see that Jesus' life was one not of a criminal, but a sacrifice, a substitute, and a payment for the sins of his people. He began to see that Isaiah 53 and God's written promise about sending a suffering servant who would bear the sorrows and the guilt and the iniquities and the pain and the brokenness of this world that he would do so for his people. That he would bear the shame and the curse that we deserve. That he would be rejected and not regarded and he would be lowly esteemed. Because we have better things to do. Well, he began to see that this was fulfilled by God's very own Son. And he began to see that all that God had promised in his word, his promise to destroy sin and to destroy death, his promise of forgiveness, his promise to make everything right for his people, his promise of renewal and resurrection, all of that was made possible. But what? through what Christ accomplished on the cross. The resurrection, brothers and sisters, is a testimony of what we sang, that He is indeed worthy. That Christ has destroyed sin and death. And He has ended its rule, and the rule of sin and darkness over His people. And this is why He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul in Romans says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we celebrate? Why does the resurrection change everything? 
The resurrection, brothers and sisters, changes everything because it testifies to the reality as the Apostle Paul knew firsthand and as every child of God knows firsthand that Jesus is very much alive. He is not dead. That he is the Son of God. But even more so, something we frequently forget. He has destroyed the power of sin and death over his people. And he has offered all who come and repent of their sins and place their faith in him. The gift of a new life. And that new life is his own life. And for the Apostle Paul, this was a life that began on the road to Damascus. And this is what accounted for him to give up everything that this world had to offer. And to be joyful in chains. Because the life that he was living and what was in his heart and in his soul was a completely new life that was free from sin and death. And though people might execute him, that didn't bother the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he possessed a life that would extend beyond the grave. That he would, after this death, be one with his Savior. And one day he would be restored like his Savior. The firstborn from the dead. With a body and a new kingdom and a new life that would match the new heart that he had been given. And brothers and sisters, that's not just the reality for the Apostle Paul. That is the reality for every child of God. One of the most moving films I've seen this past year was a documentary that was produced by Steven Spielberg called Five Came Back. And you can see it on Netflix. It was made, I believe, in 2017. And it's taken from a book. And it documents the way in which the military service of five legendary filmmakers in World War II not only changed their lives, but it changed their films and it changed their filmmaking. And these filmmakers, most of you are probably not familiar with them. They're from a generation before. John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens. Each of these men, their lives were changed through their military service for their country during World War II. George Stevens, prior to the war, was the king of rom-coms. And yet his time in the service brought him to the place where he was among the first to see what was going on in the concentration camps in Auschwitz. And he filmed and documented and was one of the first to do so. And when he came back from the war, he was unable to do romantic comedies in spite of the fact that the war had been won. And he would go on to make films which have since become famous. A Place in the Sun, Shane, and The Diary of Anne Frank. And John Huston, who was one of the wild men of Hollywood, he would come back and he would do a documentary called Let There Be Light. Well, where did he get that title from? And he documented way ahead of its time, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the way in which war breaks the strongest of men. And he would also do the film The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which was all about the way in which greed and gold destroys the human heart. William Wyler would lose his hearing. And he would lose his extended family in Europe through the Holocaust. 
of Jewish descent, he would come back and do a film called The Best Years of Our Lives, which would also document post-traumatic stress disorder. And he would also do a film about the reconciliation that happens through the gospel between Jews and Gentiles. And that film was called Ben-Hur. And finally, there was Frank Capra, who would come back and do a film with Jimmy Stewart called It's a Wonderful Life. And he would document the need for quiet, selfless sacrifice if a community and a family is to grow and to live. And it's amazing as you walk through this to see that after the war, even the cameras that these men would use and the way they would look through a lens was changed and not the same. And through this, what you see with all of these men is they realized after they came back through the sacrifice of war, that film for them was no longer about entertainment. There was a burden and need in their heart that their craft need to serve some higher purpose. Now, brothers and sisters, films come and films go. But your life is something greater and more important than a film. And the testimony of the resurrection is that God has waged a war. And he has waged a war against sin and death. What is destroying this world as we speak. And he has won that war at the cross by giving his son to die in your place and mine. To provide forgiveness for your sins and wipe the slate clean. And to give you not the same old life that you had, but a completely new life. A life that is lived by repentance and faith in Christ. But brothers and sisters, lives don't change by watching films. Lives change by participating in a war that is greater than ourselves. And the good news of the resurrection will change your life, but it will only change your life if you're willing by faith to repent of your sins and allow Christ to be Lord of your life and allow his life to become yours. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you live so that we might live. The resurrection is the reality that you are very much alive, that God's promise to destroy sin and death has happened at the foot of the cross. And that sinners most wretched like the Pharisee Saul have the opportunity to be transformed inside out. But Lord, we ask, would you give us the faith to see and would you give us the help we need so that you might fix our lives and you might fix a world that cannot fix itself. In your name we pray, amen.